Now, in the book of Matthew, chapter 21, would you open your Bible there with me, please? Matthew's Gospel and the 21st chapter, and we're going to read about Palm Sunday here again, one of the big events in the life of our Lord Jesus. Matthew 21, verse 1, stand with me to your feet, if you will, please, and we'll read God's Word together. Matthew 21, and when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethpage under the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, or beside you, and straightway you will find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, that would be Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went. They did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put, it on, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the disciples that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into the city, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. You may be seated. The account here from the Gospel of Matthew of Palm Sunday, the day when the Lord Jesus Christ entered the city of Jerusalem to begin the Passion or Holy Week. Now, Jesus entered Jerusalem many, many times. He was always going out to the countryside to another city, preaching and then returning to Jerusalem, which we would call his home base, if you will. But this was a very special entrance, unlike any of the other times he'd entered the city. And so from outside the city, on the outskirts of town, maybe a mile or two away, he said to his disciples, he picked two of them and said, I want you to go into town. And you're going to see a donkey, a little ass, and her colt, a little young colt. And I want you to get them and bring them to me. If the owner asks you what you're doing, taking his, his animals, you say to him, the Lord hath need of him, them. And Jesus said, I'm going to do a work in their heart so that they will say, well, that's okay. I'll be glad to loan that colt to the Lord. And so the disciples went and brought the colt back. The Bible says, whereon never man had sat, meaning that the colt was unbroken. It had never been trained, which in itself would be a miracle that he could ride a colt that was unbroken. And then Jesus began to ride into the city. As he did, a multitude began to gather, and they followed him, hundreds, thousands. We don't know. The Bible doesn't give us a numerical account. But what it does tell us is that the people began to take the branches of the trees and wave them 
Our children did that a few moments ago to remind us of what happened on this day. And so people were waving the branches, which they would do that in honor of a king or an important dignitary who was coming into a city. And so they were waving these, and they even would take off their outer garments, their tunics or their coats, and they would throw them down on the road in front of the, of the colt as the Lord Jesus Christ rose. And again, this was a mark of welcoming a king. In fact, they began to, uh, to say that he is a king. And Hosanna, it says here, in the highest, and Hosanna to the name of the Lord. And on this day, Jesus actually presented himself to them as the king. And they worshiped him. They accepted him. And he entered the city with all of this going on, this activity going on, focusing upon him. It was as if the whole country had now accepted him and decided he is the King of the Jews, the coming Messiah. What a change a week can make. In one week, Jesus, the hero, became zero. Talk about the fickleness of human nature. They were saying one week, hail him on Sunday. On Friday, they said, nail him. From hero to zero in one week. I talked to your children this morning over in the preschool. I went and sat there and read an account, a Bible story to the children and talked to the little kids. I mean, they're the toddlers and, you know, the little tiny children, two and three and four years old. And they came and I talked to them, and here's what I said to them. In the car going home, I want you to tell your mom and dad what we talked about today. And what we talked about is the most important week in all of the world's history, the most important week in the world because of what happened in that one week, Palm Sunday, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Passion Week, we call it. We have in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, complete accounts written from a different perspective by four different authors. I remind you again that this church is built upon the concept that the Bible is the inerrant and inspired Word of the eternal God, that Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one word of my Word will ever pass away. In fact, he said, not one jot nor tittle, meaning the little punctuation marks, would not ever vanish from the history of the world. We have two complete accounts of the birth of Christ in Matthew and in Luke. And so you can read a lot of details of his birth. We talk about that every year at Christmas. We have only one event from his childhood recorded in the Scripture. That event was when he was taken at 12 years old, and he went there for one of the Jewish feasts. And the the Lord sat and talked with the elders and the Pharisees and, and, and the officials, if you will, of Judaism gathered there at the temple site. And they were astounded at him, how much he knew. They were astounded at his wisdom, a 12-year-old boy. It was incredible to them that a 12-year-old boy could have the knowledge that the Lord Jesus had. That's the only event that we have from his childhood. 
Luke 2.52 says, it describes that childhood by saying, Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature physically, in the knowledge of God spiritually, and in the knowledge of man, meaning socially. In every part of his being, he was developing and growing. But there's not another word about the Lord Jesus Christ from the time he's 12 years old in that temple scene until he's 30 years old. So we have here all those years, eight, 18 years. We call them the silent years from 12 to 30. Many people call them the lost years. They really weren't lost. He was at home in Nazareth with his mother and Joseph, who we think may have died early in his life. He may have become the primary breadwinner for the family, working in that family carpentry shop. During that time, he learned to be a carpenter. He learned the skills that every Jewish boy was required to learn, to be able to work with his hands and make a living. And so Jesus was doing that. He had no ministry during that time that the Scripture records. But when he's 30 years of age now, it's time. Why 30? Because Jewish men were not allowed into the full uh, practice of the priesthood until they were 30. And so Jesus now is of age, if you will, to be viewed by the Jews as a complete man, so he enters his ministry. John the Baptist appeared on the scene. Who's John the Baptist? He's a cousin of the Lord Jesus Christ to start with, but he is a special man raised up by God to introduce the Lord Jesus Christ to the world. And so, he, his role in life is to introduce the Messiah to the nation. And he does this. He begins his ministry baptizing people. He is an evangelist. He's calling people to repentance. And then one day, John the Baptist sees a figure approaching there as he's baptizing by the river, Jordan. The figure comes closer. Multitudes, thousands of people. It says all the people of all the villages emptied out to hear him. And he points to this figure approaching Jesus. And here's how he describes him, just like one of those banners. He said, this is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Lamb of God? What does that mean? Every Jew knew instantaneously that that was a reference to the Passover lamb, the, lamb, the goats that were killed on the Day of Atonement and many other figures in their religion. It meant that here was the one who would be the substitute, who would take the place for all of humanity, and thus he would die and shed his blood for the sins of humanity. So Jesus then was introduced by John. He came forward through that crowd, and John that day baptized the Lord Jesus Christ, immersing him in the Jordan River. And that was the beginning of his ministry. He immediately leaves after that ministry and goes into the wilderness, and he faces what we call the temptation. I believe that order was established by the Lord himself because he had to first prove that he could be victorious over Satan before he would be able to have the ministry, to have the authority that he needed to have to forgive sins and so on. We don't know much about that except that Jesus had fasted. And Satan came at his weakest moment physically, and he attacked him all out. 
He attacked him through every medium, his appetites physically, his mental state, his emotional state. He appealed to his pride. He appealed to his physical hunger. And then the Lord Jesus Christ defeated him. And no point could Satan score, not one point. Every time Jesus defeated him, quoting the Scripture from the book of Deuteronomy each time. And then for the next two years after defeating Satan, he carried out his public ministry. The first two years were years when he spent a lot of time teaching people. He not only taught them the Scriptures and the principles, he took old truths that were tired that people had heard a thousand times, but he breathed new life and new insights into those truths. They said, no man ever spoke like this man. This man speaks with authority. He's not like these other people who just have all these theories. This man speaks from the Scripture. He quotes the Word of God, and when he uses it then, it's like a sword. He plunges it right into our hearts and makes us think about things that we never have thought about before. Sometimes we don't even want to think about. He healed people. Nobody ever came to him that needed healing that he didn't touch them and heal. We call him the great physician. He healed them for, because he had compassion on them, but he healed them for another reason. He healed them so that people would look and say, that man is not another man. That man is the Son of God. And John wrote that. He said, these signs he did that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So his healing ministry was vitally important the great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ. He cast out demons. People were demon-controlled, demon-possessed, we say. It simply means demons had entered their body and taken over their bodies, and they were acting out what the demon basically wanted them to do. And Jesus would see those people, and he would deliver them. And he had this powerful, powerful ministry he raised a young man who had just died that they were carrying out of town to the burial site. He raised a little girl in her home. And then, lastly, he raised Lazarus. The final year came, the third year of the ministry of the Lord. On that final year, he focused on training his disciples. And interestingly, though they had accepted him, a great multitude had accepted him on Palm Sunday, all that last year, people are gradually turning away from Jesus. People are withdrawing from him. And you can tell that he's hurt by that. It, he, he senses a sharp, the pain of, of betrayal. He, he's going through some sad times at, at this point. The crowds are leaving. He's isolated. He spends more time in prayer. He spends <clears throat> most of his time training the 12. And now he raises Lazarus from the dead. That was the final straw, it seemed to be, among the opposition because it says in the book of John right after he raised Lazarus from the dead that it says they took counsel to put him to death. And so now there's a plan in place to kill the Lord Jesus Christ to destroy him. In fact, not only to destroy him, but it says, and Lazarus also, meaning we destroy Lazarus, we will destroy the greatest single example of his power 
this man who was not only dead but was rotting in a tomb for four days, and now he's walking among us. So they had to get rid of him as well. The opposition is building to a fever pitch. The leaders are threatened. They have to get rid of Jesus. According to the prophecy, he mounts the little colt and rides into the town. And the crowds welcome him, and this increases the threat of the leaders. We've got to get rid of him, and so they arrest him. Judas betrays him for 30 pieces of silver, and now they take him to be crucified. There are two charges against him as they lead him to the crucifixion. The first one is a religious charge, and they charge him with blasphemy because they said he made himself the Son of God. Well, he didn't make himself the Son of God. He was the Son of God. And they asked him one day, are you the Son of God? And he said, I am. It's absolutely unequivocally clear that Jesus Christ claimed to be God, God the Son. The second charge against him was not religious. It was a civil charge. It was a legal charge brought by the Romans against him because they said he made himself to be the king of the Jews, and they didn't want the Jews to have a king. They wanted to control everything. And so Jesus Christ, they asked him, are you, Pilate asked him in John chapter 18, are you in fact a king? And Jesus said, yes, I am. And that was the death knell for him at that point. And so a religious charge, blasphemy. He's made himself equal with God. A civil charge, insurrection. He's going to become the king of the Jews and lead a rebellion against the Roman Empire. And so they arrested him. You know the story. And they took him to crucify him. As was so powerfully portrayed in that movie, The Passion of Christ, they, the crucifixions always began with a flogging. The flogging itself sometimes was fatal because they would take this cat of nine tails and they would hit the victim and those little pieces of glass or metal that they put on the end of those little leather pieces would stick into the skin. They literally would pull it down. It would plow the back of the person. They usually gave them 39 stripes. They hit that person, but that, that whip had eight or nine different pieces of rawhide on it. Josephus says that sometimes in a flogging that the back was so flayed open that the internal organs would fall out on the ground. The victim would die before they were ever even affixed to the cross. They flogged him. He spit in his face, beat him with a rod, punched him with their fist, put a crown of thorns down on his head. You can't imagine such suffering. And then they would nail the victim's hands. They, we call it the hand, but actually it was the wrist right here. You would tear out if you nailed you through the soft part of your hands. So they nailed him through the wrist. And then they nailed him through the arches of his feet. Can you imagine such pain? We just hear this stuff. We just pass it off. Oh, I'm going to church. We're talking about the crucifixion. No, I want you to feel the crucifixion just a little bit if it's possible. This is what he did for me. This is what he did for you. Do you know they invented a word to describe the suffering of the cross? Did you know that? 
there's a word that came into being in our language and other languages. The word is excruciating. Look at the word excruciate, and the center part of it is E-X, and then you see C-R-U-C, crux, cruz, cross in Latin. They invented a word, excruciating, a new word to describe the pain. Because as a man hung there, bent over in weakness, his diaphragm was constricted. He couldn't take in a full breath of air. And he would push up, and that would put pressure on the nails on his feet. It's unimaginable. I'm not trying to make I'm not trying to be dramatic. I'm not trying to be grotesque. But I don't want you to just read cross. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Okay, pass me another glass of tea. I want you to understand this is the most important event that ever happened in history. And this is not a criminal. This is God. This is God who came down to the earth. We talk about genocide, killing a whole bunch of people. We talk about homicide, killing one person. This is deicide. This is killing God. Killing God. Excruciating. And he hung there. The cross was so awful because that death would be so slow. Some victims hung there for two or three days. Death would finally mercifully come because there would be exhaustion, there would be dehydration, there would be, there would be blood loss, but most of all, there would be suffocation, because as the victim weakened, it slumped further and further, and they couldn't get a full breath, and so they weren't getting enough oxygen. Then they would begin to hallucinate and imagine things. Sometimes the Romans would come by and take a mallet, and the soldier would hit them on the shin bone and break the bone. That way they couldn't push up anymore, and death would come more quickly. It was the end. It was such a bad death that the Romans wouldn't let one of their citizens do it. They did it to the people in the provinces. It was a way to keep them in fear of the government and control them. And so, you know, they were going to they threatened Paul with crucifixion. He said, you can't crucify me. I'm a Roman citizen. No Roman could be. They did that to the Jews and to the other countries that they had um, they had controlled. They did one other thing when they crucified people. They took the list of their charges, and they wrote it out, and then they would nail it to the cross. And there was sort of a grotesque form of cruel entertainment. Some people, you know, like to be around the people who stop and gape at accidents and stuff. They enjoy watching something like that for some morbid reason that we don't understand. And people would come and they'd walk by those crosses, those three crosses. And they would read the list of sins. He's a robber. He's a thief. He's a killer. He, he is, he, he's a a terrorist, or whatever the charge was. So they put a sign up on Jesus, the king of the Jews. That was not just a title. That was the charge. See, the charge was he's leading an insurrection against, against the Roman state. The Bible speaks to that. Turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 2. 
the book of Colossians chapter 2. There's a verse over there. I noticed it this week because I taught the book of Colossians uh, Wednesday night. And in Colossians chapter number 2 and verse 14, it says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances against us. That was contrary to us. What does that mean? That means the list of charges that God had against me and you for our sins, that, that char- those charges have been blotted out by Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us. He, it says he nailed those charges to his cross. He took those charges. So somewhere in the annals of eternity and in the books of God, there is a, there's a name with William T. Monroe, and it has the list of charges against me. And those charges will remain throughout eternity unless and until I come to the Lord Jesus Christ and have those charges removed. And when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, God blots those charges out. But if you reject Christ, turn with me if you want to, to the book of Revelation, if you will, for a moment. If you reject our Lord Jesus Christ, there'll come a final day of judgment, and you will face those charges. Now, they won't be nailed to a cross. You won't be crucified, but it's the same principle that they're the listing of the charges against the sinner will be, will be shown on that day. Revelation chapter 20, I'm reading here, let's see, beginning in verse 11. I saw a great white throne. This is the final judgment of the unsaved. No Christians are there. We've been raptured. But this is a great white throne judgment of all lost people. And him that sat on the throne from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, And there was no place for them, no place to hide. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books. There's the list of charges. And at the great white throne, the list of charges against every unrepentant, unsaved sinner will be listed there. That person will be faced with those charges. The sea will give up the dead that's in it, and the dead and, the, and, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged according to their works, according to that list of charges. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life, all unsaved, unrepentant people, was cast into the lake of fire. You see, if God is just and God is holy, Sin must be judged. Every sin and every transgression shall receive a just recompense of reward, Hebrews chapter 2 says. Not one sin. People think they sin and get away with it. No, you don't. You get away with it for a while. You get away from it for, with it for a time. But someday, somewhere, if there is a God and if that God is just, sin must be paid. And every sin will be paid. The list of charges will be there at the great white throne judgment. And so now Jesus Christ hangs there, the sign above his head, the charge against him. He's the king of the Jews, best they could come up with. And between the sixth and the ninth hour, that part of the world got dark, so dark that God hid his son, I think, 
And what was going on for three hours, I think the Lord didn't want the public to see what his son was having to do. Theologians call it the great transaction, the great transaction as he hung there. I read to you what was going on from the book of Isaiah. You don't need to turn. Just let me read it. Here's what was going on in those three hours as on the cross, the punishment for sin of all humanity was poured out on Jesus Christ. Surely he hath borne our griefs. Notice those pronouns. He carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our, I could say, my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement or punishment of my peace was upon him. And with his stripes, I am healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him my iniquity to put it in the first person. Down in verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. I want you to notice that phrase. Who was it that crucified Jesus Christ? Yes, it was the Jews. Yes, it was the Romans. I add one more name that you people don't ordinarily think about. It was God himself who required the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The Romans and the Jews were the mere human players. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he will make his soul, Jesus' soul, an offering for sin. And he will see the travail of his soul. What was going on in those six hours? His soul was travailing. His soul was being punished in a deeper way, I think, than his body. I believe the greatest pain of Jesus Christ was not the nails in his hands. It was the hurt in his heart as the Holy Son of God bore the sin of the whole world, bore Bill Monroe's sin. The cross, the most important day in history. 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. What was Jesus doing in those three hours of darkness? Well, occasionally he would speak. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Everybody had left but the Romans and a couple of his followers. The executioners were there doing their bloody work. And every now and then they would hear him speak. The other prisoners were cursing and railing and carrying on, not him. Father, forgive them. They don't have any idea what they're doing. And then he comes to the end to And The soldier says, to that's a receipt. That means that's something you sign. That's a bill when you sign a statement that the debt has been paid. Why is this man saying to Telestai, the debt is paid? The soldier had no idea what was going on, of course. At the end, that was his last word. It's finished. It's paid. 
to Telestai. The great transaction. God Almighty took all the sin of humanity, all those charges against us, and put them up on Jesus. And he suffered and bled and blotted out the charges that are against us. And that's why we're here today. Greatest day in history. My soul depends upon that for salvation and heaven and future and meaning and purpose. Three days later, as you know, he resurrected. We'll talk about that next Sunday. Now, let me apply what I've just taught here. All your life, you've heard preachers say, myself included, if you want to be saved, you have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 16, 31. You've heard preachers say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him. And so we tell people, you just have to believe. We read Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. By grace are you saved through faith. But there's a great concern to serious preachers and Christians across America today because we have something like 40 or 50 million people in America who claim to be born again. And yet we're watching our country rot down day by day by day. If there was 40 or 50 million truly born again children of God in the country, wouldn't it be different? Would, would, would we be seeing what we're seeing happen? And so often it's people who even profess to be Christians. And here's what we've concluded, that you can believe something. Now, listen to me carefully. It's possible to believe something and yet not rely on it. Stop and think about that. Belief in the Bible means you rely on something, not just have a knowledge of it in your head. To have faith in something means you rely on it like you sit on a chair. You rely on it. It, it requires a certain action on your part, not as works for salvation, but as a result of you actually believe the facts you've just learned or heard. And what we're seeing happen today is people claim to believe, but there's no evidence in their life that anything's any different than it ever was. And so on this day, when I get to preach on the cross again, I want to challenge you. Do you just believe intellectually, or do you rely on the cross? That's the challenge. See, the doctors all tell me this. One of the biggest problems we have with people is They'll come in, we tell them what's wrong with them, we diagnose their illness, we give them a prescription, they go buy the medicine, then they don't take it faithfully and regularly. Here's a man, he's struggling with diabetes or a lady, and we say, you've got to have this insulin, and they'll take it, and then after a while they get careless about it. Well, I, 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 I forgot about it today. Here's a woman with high blood pressure. She goes to the doctor. He gives her a prescription. She picks up the pills, and then she forgets to take it for two or three days at a time. You see, here's the deal. She believes in her head that she needs that medicine. She believes that that medicine will control her hypertension or her diabetes, but she doesn't rely on it. You can believe and not rely. 
in one sense. I won't ask how many here have ever done that. But you believe that that pill will keep you from having high blood pressure, but there'll be spaces of time, oh, it's just not worth the trouble. And in the same way, I want to challenge you today, my dear friend. I wouldn't love you as a pastor. I wouldn't care most of all about your soul if I didn't say this to you today, that it's not enough for you to intellectually understand the story that I told you about the cross. You must rely upon it. You must rely upon it. Hear me. Your soul depends upon whether you rely upon that or not. It's not just hearing it with your ears. Please hear me. There's nothing more urgent. This is the greatest thing that ever happened in the world. And then I have to ask myself another question. Is what I am relying on true? Because if I have that tube of insulin and I've mistakenly somebody's given me saline solution, well, then it's not going to help me. If I have that pill and I say, I'm taking this to control my hypertension, but I got the bottle mixed up and, and inside the bottle are vitamins. So I not only have to truly rely upon the cross, I have to understand the truth of it and apply that to my life. And if you're not sure of that today, that's why we give an invitation at our church and we preach and plead with people and urge you with all the passion of our being, come to Christ. Come to the cross. Don't just say, that's a great story. I believe it. Rely upon it today. Put your very future, your destiny, your soul in dependence upon it. And for those of us who know that we're saved, one quick point. You know, salvation, when it really happens in a person's life, it causes a change of loyalties. When I truly am a believer in Jesus Christ, when it can be said that I'm a true Christian, then my loyalties will always change. Jesus is describing the people he calls his sheep, believers, Here's what he says about sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Are you following, Christian? I'm over in the book of Luke, chapter number 9, and Jesus there said something like this. He said, if you would be my disciple, hear me now, listen to me closely. If you're my disciple, you must deny yourself Take up your cross and follow me. Question, in what way are you denying yourself? See, I think that American Christianity has come to a point that we follow Christ when it's convenient, when it fits our schedule, when it mixes with our priorities, but then there are other times it's not convenient, so... We don't do it, and we think it's just optional whether we follow Christ. The mark of a sheep is in his ears. Sheep don't run ahead of the shepherd, and true sheep don't ignore the shepherd. True sheep follow the shepherd. Are you a sheep?
Are you really following the Lord? Are you living a life of obedience, godliness? I challenge you on this Palm Sunday to do that. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.